a Podcast One production. Horticultural industries in Australia are almost completely dependent on overseas workers who need to complete this work in order to secure a future for themselves in Australia. But does this leave not only the Australian horticultural industry vulnerable should this workforce dry up, but also the overseas workers themselves as they enter a work contract in an industry that they rarely have existing skills in, that's lacking in work health and safety standards, and where sometimes the only advocacy a worker can get for the farm is from asking past workers on Facebook. G'day, I'm Chris Russell, and welcome to AgriMinders. Over 80% of horticultural, casual and seasonal labour in Australia are overseas guests, mainly on either working holiday so-called backpacker visas or Pacific Island worker visas. Many, if not most, of these workers are engaged via labour hire hostels, where much of their earnings are deducted for spurious accommodation and transport charges, and large fees are charged to secure positions. Whilst fruit and vegetable growers are complying with minimum wage and other labour requirements, they are forced to deal through these labour hire middlemen or risk being unable to plant, grow or harvest their produce. Similarly, bonded visas mean workers can lose their visas if they complain or refuse the employment conditions imposed by these intermediary labour hire companies. How have we got ourselves into this position that is clearly unacceptable for the workers and puts the fresh food industry at high risk? Whilst the fruit and vegetable growers are generally not directly at fault and comply with Australian employment law, they're addicted to and entirely dependent on a source of labour that is at best dodgy and at worst completely illegal and probably unthinkable in most fair-minded Australians' minds. So what can we do to make our fresh food industry sustainable and yet meet acceptable employment standards without losing access to visas that potentially have great benefit to overseas youth and, indeed, via reciprocal arrangements, our own young Australians, as well as the developing countries of the Pacific. Why have we become so dependent on these bonded workers in horticulture? To explore this significant issue, I'm going to talk to three AgriMinder stakeholders. First up, John Sade, who is the CEO of Fresh Select, our biggest Australian vegetable producer. Then we'll speak to Diane Vandenbroek, who is the co-author of a definitive report about slave-like conditions in Australian agriculture carried out by the University of Adelaide. And then finally, James Whiteside, the CEO of Ausveg, the peak body for vegetable producers in Australia. First up, John Sade. John Sade is the Managing Director of Fresh Select, a vertically integrated farming company that specialises in the production of vegetables and sells primarily through a supply partnership with major supermarkets. John also holds position on various industry committees as current chairman of the Product Marketing Association of Australia and New Zealand and a board member of the Global Produce Marketing Association. Welcome to AgriMinders, John. Thank you, and thanks for having me. 
So, John, you're clearly the major player in this world. What are the problems you really face in terms of labour and getting that crop to market? Labour today is is incredibly expensive. Uh, Productivity is a challenge. There's no doubt about that. But uh, with minimum wage prices and uh, recent increases and changes, uh, it's it certainly made um, made labour rather expensive when you talk about uh, produ- production of vegetables at any rate. So why aren't Australian seasonal workers doing this work? Why are we using those programs? That is such a good question, Chris. That is a, an extremely good question. I mean, there's a lot of debate around working for the dole and all of that. I mean, I don't want to really get into that, but one thing I know for certain is that I just don't believe we have enough available labour um, as Australians, for that matter, to fill the type of um, uh, roles that we have. Um, or there maybe isn't the right emphasis on on, on people who uh, who can work and perhaps choose not to. Well, we, I mean, we don't really have full employment in Australia. I mean, there are mm. surely people who are, would be available and need the money, otherwise we wouldn't be paying the dole out. I agree. I think I think you're hundred percent right. And, and but I think we need to take we need to do a review of that and just really find out, you know, who can come and work. I mean, we've you know we've got positions every day. You know, we've got gaps to fill every day, and we depend very heavily on labour. I mean, otherwise, how do you harvest food and how do you get it to market? I mean, mechanisation is um, is coming, and you know, automation is coming, but it's a long way off. And you'll still need operators. You'll still need that that manual um, component of labour to be able to harvest the veggies and get them to market. And how stressful is it for Fresh Select to be so dependent on these sources of labour, which you don't even know who they're going to be, assumedly, because they're not even here yet in Australia. When you're thinking about employing them. It's very stressful, Chris. That's absolutely right. That's one of the greatest stress points of our industry, believe it or not, that and the weather. But you know every farmer whinges about the weather, right? So <laughs> <laughs> so we'll keep that for another topic. But um, but yes, it is. It's incredibly stressful because, you know, you get one crack at this and if you don't get your veggies harvested and, and you know, you've got to go back the next day, they're not the same as the day that they're ready. Simple as that. So you need your, your force there when you need it. So if, if the backpacker program and the and the Pacific Islander program and so on suddenly stopped and those sources of labour weren't there, how would horticulture handle that? It wouldn't. It would implode. It's as simple as that. It would not. It just would not survive that. It, there would be um, fruit rotting on trees. There would be vegetables and that you couldn't that you couldn't harvest food would be scarce, not because it's not there grown. It's just that you would not be able to get it to market. So even if you put the wages up substantially, you still wouldn't attract enough Australians to go and fill the gap. That's a really good point. I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think the diversity that we have in terms of our geography as a country and uh, the season that people are harvesting at times, I don't think you'd be able to do it. No, no, that's my guess. You couldn't do it. So you would have been aware of the various reports that have come out. There was one came out of Adelaide University recently and there's been a, a, a group in Sydney that have done some studies on this, sort of almost comparing the labour that's used by these horticultural industries to a sort of modern form of slavery. And yet it sounds as though we're almost dependent on the current situation. Um, if it's not money that's the problem, what, you know, how how do we actually get away from this idea that that these guys who are coming to work and women um, from the Pacific Islands and from uh, from packbackers and so on aren't being 
sort of coerced into working for less than ideal can working conditions and money as a way of subsidising horticulture, but also taking advantage of their predicament as as visitors. Mm. Yeah, look, there's there's no doubt that there's been some uh, unscrupulous behaviour within the industry over the past few years. But one one thing that that is for certain is that that is uh, very much uh, being being straightened out. There's there's a lot of reform that's taking place, Chris. And look, I'm not questioning university studies and and, and whatnot, but I certainly can only speak for my experience. My experience is is that we provide very transparent working conditions. Um, we provide a, a work environment that is that is conducive to what I consider to be best practice, um, and that's not me making up the rules. It's you know fitting in with how people want to be treated. I mean, and, and look, I think if you're not in that, if you're not doing it that way, then to your point earlier, people just won't come to work. I don't believe anybody wants to come to work to be abused, nor do they want to come to work not to be paid correctly nor do they want to come to work and not know if their positions are secure for the next day and so on. So I think those days are slowly but surely coming um, coming to a close. I think if it still is happening, it's only a matter of time before it will get completely addressed. Um, I know for certain that, that today the workforces that we have around us enjoy coming to work. Look, the work's hard, there's no question. And you know, name me and find me a job that isn't hard these days. It's Everything's hard in what we do. We all find things difficult at times, but these are these are individuals who see an opportunity to be able to work and better their lives here in Australia, even if it's a, a Pacific Island program. I think it's a fantastic program. It's a great initiative. You know, countries are creating relationships and creating opportunities between them. Um, you know, backpackers for that matter are similar. Whilst they're here, they're spending, they're enjoying Australia, they feel safe. You know, the work conditions are good. So it's it's creating these opportunities, and and I think while we got a low unemployment rate and a and a well, it seems as though a, a non desire for for some Australians to not want to work in the industry, these gaps are being filled and successfully filled. So, you know, I just hope that we don't we don't lose momentum of that. That's a certain. So, John, if I could take you just though to your point about the fact that they wouldn't come to work if they didn't want to be there or if the conditions weren't good enough. I, I'm not sure if that's really true, particularly for backpackers. I mean, these these people, uh, young men and women who have no, in many cases, no experience at all at working in agriculture or horticulture, the only reason they're doing this is that they can only get that extra year on their visa to, and that's why I've called this episode Visas for Vistas, because in a sense, <clears throat> they're coming to Australia to experience the wonderful Australian sort of um, story and, and life and sun and beaches and all the rest of it. The only reason why they can extend that is by working in regional areas. So if whereas an Australian worker may say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do that, it's too dangerous or um, I, I'm not going to stay in that hovel anymore and say so that, the, these people have got that extra coercion to say, well, I'm just going to put up with it because if I don't, I'm not going to get the extra year here or in the case of Pacific workers, I'm going to be sent home again and I, and I won't get that opportunity. So is that really true that they wouldn't do it? I, I've got a feeling that in some cases we're taking advantage of that by and not giving them what we know we'd have to give an Australian worker because we know we're holding that over them, if you like. Look, we don't make the rules. As, as an industry, um, as farmers, we certainly don't make the rules. This is a rule that's been made by government and um, visa extension, in my opinion, is a controversial topic to begin with. And furthermore, 
there's a zones that these visa extensions work in and there are zones that they don't. Now, we're a peri-urban farm. The majority of our production is peri-urban. So we're 30 kilometres outside the Melbourne CBD. Now, I, we cannot get backpackers to work um, on our property uh, to extend their visa because they're too close to a capital city. Now, these rules are well known to individuals when they're coming into the country. They're very well versed with that. They know what they've got to do and they know what they're up for. Um, as I say, we don't make those rules. We, we have to follow those rules. It's actually even harder for us in a peri-urban environment because we still have the same rules that apply. And that is, well, they vary, but the same rule applies in that we still need labour every day. We, we probably don't need it the next day. Then we need it again the day after. So the volatility is still there, whether we're peri-urban or whether we're out in a, in a you know, orchard 300 kilometres north of Melbourne. It, it Regardless of where you are and regardless of what you do, we have volatility in how all this works. So the fact that um, individuals have the opportunity to come um, into regions to extend their visas, well, I really don't think that's a bad thing, but so long as they're treated fairly, they've got to be treated fairly, they've got to be treated humanely, and they've got to be treated with respect. So Simple how do you that. audit that as a, you know, as a, it's almost like a, you're dealing with producers who don't necessarily report straight to you, they supply you, how do you actually audit that? Well, we don't, we don't have, we audit in a sense that we've got, um, we f- go under SEDEX. So SEDEX is an independent non-for-profit organisation globally that um, uh, that we have to fill a questionnaire out and that triggers whether we need to be audited or not. Now, there's there's many mechanisms. There's Fair Work. There's a, there's a program in Queensland run by Growcom. There are various different products um, available that, that can assess how all of that goes, right? And the difficulty is, is that who from an authoritarian body is actually uh, um, policing it, okay? That's the difficulty. Now, I think that um, that individuals have to be accountable. There's no doubt about that. As farmers, we're all accountable. Um, and, and I just, and I, and I truly believe that those that aren't, those that are doing the wrong thing will be met with, with, uh, with the law at a certain point in time. John, you mentioned at the beginning how it was stressful, really, the fact that you had no idea where your labour was coming from. Do you think that this whole situation puts a lot of undue stress on your producers that probably they're not even, I mean, they don't have HR departments, they don't have experts in labour. Um, do you think that there's unnecessary um, stress being put on them in having to handle all of these issues and complaints about hostels and all the things? Look, absolutely. I mean, we're farmers. We're not We're not everything you've just mentioned. I mean, yes, yeah, sure, okay, we have a HR team. Yes, sure, we have people out in the field checking on, on, on our, you know, on our staff and making certain that they're okay. We have that. But, yeah, not everybody can have that. I mean, there are some, some remote, very remote farms that, you know, the, the, the farmer is everything from, from the farmer to the accountant to the HR uh, manager to, you know, to whatever skill needs to be done on the business. Now, it is difficult and it is stressful. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And if there was a better system and if there was a better way of being able to manage and and come up with some level of compliance around the, the you know, to your point earlier, the um, the issues associated, then yeah, sure, bring it on. But at this point in time, it just seems as though it's always pushed down the line. And that, that I suppose, is the difficult part. 
Is there, I mean, is there a need for training? It seems to me that in terms of Australians, and there, I guess my reading is that there are probably three main groups of Australian workers here. Um, there's young workers, school leavers who are having a gap year or just travelling around, but they're all Australian. There's the long-term unemployed who work for the dole, if you like. And then there's also the kind of permanent nomads, the grey nomads and the people who are at the other end of their lives and they're looking to pick up a bit of work. Now, if there was some sort of training centre in the Riverina or, you know, up in the strawberry growing areas or whatever that actually could provide training and then get a more permanent trained workforce available... Isn't that an obvious way to go? I don't think any idea is a bad idea, Chris. I really don't. I think every idea is a great idea. However, you need the numbers to be able to populate and to be able to get in and get those those crops harvested. Now, I mean, I could I could you know go through a number of contingencies with with the three categories that you've mentioned. Say school leavers, they might want to come and get a bit of cash, and then they're heading off for their overseas break, right? So. There's a disruption. Um, long, long-term unemployed? Yeah, sure, let's get them back to work. But once again, whose responsibility is it to get the long-term unemployed back to work? That's the bigger question. And grey nomads, well, you know, they're all welcome to come and park their caravans around our farms and, and give, us a, give us a few months' work. But again, you know, their poss- the possibility of them moving on is quite high. So you're forever retraining at that point, Chris. But if they were, if there was a training school to create people who even normal, you know, when I say normal, even people in their career part of their lives in a skill, aren't they more likely to come back each season or at each time you need them and, and be available and not have to go through this whole retraining and, and have a very simplified work form because they've already gone through a college or gone through some sort of um, TAFE type system to learn the skills? Look, possibly, you know, possibly. You don't know if you don't try, do you? So... As I said, no idea is a bad idea when you've got, you know, a need to have um, labour forces, you know, within growing growing regions around Australia. I say bring it on. Why not? And do these do these uh, Australian itinerants make up much of a percentage of the people you use or not really? You know, um, Chris, in one particular application, I'm looking at there's 0% Australians <laughs> in that, but, you know, it's it's a difficult one because it like I said earlier it's hard work okay and um, it is it's difficult conditions at times I mean the other morning we had one degree temperature and we had to wait actually before we could go out there to harvest because the, literally the leaves of the vegetables were frozen now you know they're tough conditions and until we get some kind of mechanisation and some kind of you know assistance in that in that area which is probably quite quite some years away. Uh, it's still going to be that tough. You know, it'd even be tough for a machine for that matter because it probably wouldn't even run. <laughs> um, so the, the the bottom line is it continues to be hard. So I, you know, I, I mean, I urge, I urge the area around the long-term unemployed. There's no doubt about that because I think that, um, I think that there's some great opportunity around that. Um, but, uh, but in terms of Australians, I mean, there's certain roles that they fill. There's certain roles that, um, that, that can be filled, but uh, but then it's a question of wanting to do that. John, thank you very much for giving us a view right from the ground. Clearly some challenges there, but really appreciate you being our agriminder today. It's an absolute pleasure, Chris, anytime. John has told us that the loss of overseas visa holders as a source of seasonal and casual labour in the production of fresh produce in Australia would see that industry implode. Australian workers are just not available in the regional areas in our very urbanised community and just don't seem to be prepared to do this work. 
Yet the bonded nature of these visas, where Pacific Island visa holders are not able to swap employers and are usually sponsored by local labour hire companies, clearly leaves them open to overcharging for accommodation or transport, etc., and a loss of independence and choice as regards their employment conditions. So to explore the degree to which this situation is exploited by some unscrupulous intermediaries between these willing workers and primary producers, our next agri-minder is Associate Professor Diane Vandenbroek. Diane is Associate Professor in the Discipline of Work and Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School. She is responsible for over nine book sections, 49 journal articles, three commissioned industry reports and 53 conference papers. Specifically, Diane was the co-author of a recent paper on this area of horticultural labour supply sponsored by the University of Adelaide. This was entitled Towards a Durable Future, Tackling Labour Challenges in the Australian Horticultural Industry. Welcome to AgriMinders, Diane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. So the suggestion is that this horticultural business has become almost completely addicted to cheap labour. So the cheap labour can be from local sources, people like grey nomads, young workers, uh, long-term unemployed, all those sorts of people. And then there's also the migrant workers, which can be working holiday makers, can be seasonal workers from the Pacific brought in partly to teach them and partly because they're willing to work in places where Australians won't and annual workers who just come up under the Pacific Labor Scheme. But all of those are coming in under some sort of a protection, if you like, of a visa, which is dependent on them working. And, of course, that leaves a great risk of exploitation, both by the people who hire them and potentially by the people who are the end users of them. How have we become so dependent on this, Diane? Yeah, well, I think I'd agree in your opening statement that we do need to look at regulation and the management of, of the horticultural workforce generally. How we've come about, well, I suppose if you look at some of the research in 2004, the local workforce pr- pretty much contributed to 50% of the of the horticultural workforce. I think now, or 2006 actually was the last, which is a fair while ago, it's a third of local workers. Two thirds then are really constituted by migrant workers, as you say, and often temporary workers. And the lion's share of that two-thirds would be working holiday makers, commonly known as backpacker labour, or we also have seasonal worker program, which is a, is a smaller component. So if you look at the most recent stats on working holiday makers, it's approximately 150,000 backpackers who might work in on farms. And seasonal workers program about 8,500. So the migrant workforce, as you say, temporary, there's, of course, undocumented workers, which are often overstayers of visas. We can't find numbers on that. Obviously, very difficult to find a hidden population like that. So yeah, two thirds of the horticultural workforce are migrant workers. How we got here? Gee, it's a sort of an incremental, I think, combination of visa changes, visas, as you say, being dependent on work within the horticulture sector which I think really came about in the early 20,000s. So we, uh, the backpacker visa, for example, comes around in 1980, 1995. But then in 2005, that's when we start seeing the link to visas. So that's when we start seeing the 88 days to work on a farm to get that extra year 
of uh, being able to stay in Australia. Okay, so just to, to unpack that a little bit. So when, when someone comes from overseas as a so-called backpacker, mm-hmm. they come on a one-year working visa. But That's if right. they do 88 days work in regional areas, in defined areas, yep. they can actually get an extension of another year. That's right. And actually I've, I've called this Vistas for Visas because mm-hmm. in a sense what we're saying is we'll let you have the Vistas of enjoying a holiday in Australia for a bit longer, earning enough money to pay for it, providing you do some work in the bush. Yeah, the problem with that, though, is the backpacker visa, if you look at the wording around what it is, it's a cultural exchange. So the way it sort of started was really with European countries. So I think there was 19 countries. There's two subclass visas within the backpacker visa. One, uh, the 417 visa, really includes most of the co- sort of like OECD countries like Canada, the um, UK, EU, most of the sort of comparable sort of living standard countries. But then we have the subclass 462, which is 23 countries from much more developing economies. Now, if we think about the way the visa started in the beginning, it was pretty much Europeans coming to, to English you know, young people for a cultural exchange and probably was used a little bit more the way it should have been used. Now, over a period, that that's now a misnomer. I think a lot of the people who are backpackers actually are coming to work and that's all they're doing. They don't have backpacks. They don't go and see Australia. They don't have a vista except all they do is work for the two years, and that's where I think things have started to change a bit. There is, of course, still those kids that come and get the cultural exchange, get the 88 days, continue on around Australia, have a fantastic time, does what it should do. That's where the visas work. Well, you know, when they come and just work for the two years, they're doing that because they want they can't get work in their own country, or, or they can't get comparable work with the same wages. So, in other words, no. the wages, even if we think they're low, are actually better than they would get at of home. Of course, if you look at the countries that we're talking about, which would be Taiwan, South Korea, Bangladesh, Thailand, Malaysia, Argentina, you can see where, as China, the slippages come. Where you know that's sort of how we get blueberries for two dollars a punnet. So in a sense, we're, we're judging by what we expect people to be earning rather than the fact that these people are quite happy to earn reduced wages because they're still higher than what they get at home. Yeah, and I think that's where the difference is, that if you take the visa on face value, it's a great idea. Give kids 88 days to experience, you know, working on a beautiful farm in Australia, give them an extra year. It can work that way if you've got countries with comparable standards of living. Once you start getting a big disparity between, you know, the the sort of workers that are coming here or the people that are coming here where the wages are really different, I think you're starting to see it turn into a labour market strategy rather than a, you know, a travelling strategy. I've noticed that if I speak to the farmers, the farmers say we're paying the wages, the amounts of money that we're supposed to pay because the law says what the minimum wage is and we're paying that. But most of those guys get their labour either by dealing with labour hire agencies or they're dealing with local hostels in the town who bring labour in, give them accommodation for which they charge them, and then are sort of like the, the contact point to, to flesh out, send those kids out to work on particular farms. Yeah. Am I sensing that one of the reasons why these guys feel exploited when they're here is not because the farmer's not paying enough money, but because they're not getting enough of it and they've got this middleman in the middle who's mm. taking accommodation price regardless of whether he's giving them work or not? Mm. I think that's the case. I mean, look, there's many farmers in Australia that are paying, obviously, legal wages. There's always going to be some 
some people that are trying to undercut the neighbour. So some farmers might be trying to undercut. It's bad for all farmers. It's bad for all growers if there are, if there are other farms paying cheaper wages because that's an overhead which is unfair for them. So that there is no level playing field once you start getting people undercut. And as you say, I think the slippages do come when the grower possibly outsources a lot of the responsibility for the work to a labour hire company. Um, there are multiple leakage sites, I think, within that sort of supply chain, if you want to call it that, where hostels, accommodation providers, transport providers, labour hire companies can all get their take and some of the less scrupulous labour hire companies will be undercutting the people that they're employing. So, yes, I think that is some, where some of the exploitation can slip in. So how can that be fixed? Well, I think we're already on the road to trying to fix that. There was a couple of, there's been a couple of reports. The most important for the labour hire industry is the fourth site uh, inquiry that was undertaken in, in Victoria in 2016. As a result of that inquiry, quite a few states have now introduced a licensing system for labour hire companies. A national scheme would be a, a good way to deal with that. So I think that there is tightening up there with um, some of the labour hire companies. I think the Fair Work Ombudsman, you know, does try and play a role. There's obviously been a lot of inquiries. The Fair Work Ombudsman did an inquiry in 2016 and found a lot of underpayment. There is also the Modern Slavery Hearings recently last year that talks about the supply chain issues. And there's also the federal government's um, Migrant Worker Task Force report, which was just this year talking about more criminal sanctions for people who are undercutting. How, how will the criminal sanctions work? I think fair work really should play a big role in, in, in overseeing. And I think that's the problem with some of the visas. Backpackers particularly, they're not really regulated particularly well. Once they're in Australia, they're sort of lost, lost in the system in a sense. They're not really monitored very well. Um, they really can be possibly stuck on a farm, isolated, you know, it's like them and the farm. There might not be an infrastructure for them to be able to feel as if they can go to places to get some security. So how it will work in the future, I, I suppose it will just have to be oversight through the Fair Work Ombudsman. Trade unions don't really play much of a role, but I also think there should be, and I think there will be much more industry coming together to sort of work together to try and fix this at a sort of local level, you know, at a sort of a regional level possibly within particular geographic areas industry associations, those sorts of things. With these labour hire firms, when, when, when the farmers approach them and say, look, we need labour, we haven't got time to hunt around for it, you know, we've got to pick our strawberries next week or whatever, yeah. how does the labour hire firm actually check out the farm to make sure it's a safe place to work, that it's free of uh, the normal things that would make a, a workplace unsuitable? I think a lot of a lot of it comes through relationships, word of mouth within a community about you know where good farms are and where possibly might, there might be farms that aren't operating particularly well. But a lot of the the way the labour hire companies work is just if you have an ABN and a, and a mobile phone number, you've basically got a you know labour hire company. I think with this new legislation that will change. So you need registration. You need to have much more sort of formal and accessible and be monitored, I suppose, by... And does that mean the hostel owners will have to become labour hire companies? Well, the hostel owners are in a bit of a different situation, but some of the some of the hostels are working as labour hire operators and they will need registration for that, yes. But again, there is a slippage, I think, with hostels. You'll see some hostels might be overcharging backpackers. I mean, I had an interesting experience in Bundaberg where I interviewed a relatively good operator of a hostel and I asked them whether my 20-year-old children could stay in their hostel just you know, to pick some local fruit, as I did when I was a young person. And she said, no, 
that they had to be on a backpacker visa. They had to be, in a sense, sort of bound by that visa. So it somewhat disappointed me that I couldn't do, uh, I couldn't, my children couldn't do but that. But that sort of implies a kind of captive audience that they want the power to say, if you don't do this and if you don't turn up and if then we, we will report you and you won't get your visa. And it's like extra power, which in, if you're doing it to an Australian, the only way you can do that is with money. That's right. I think it is a device, a lever by which hostels can, um, I mean, I think there's a, some, there can be quite a tense, rela- or not a tense, but a tight relationship between hostel owners and some growers where if a backpacker goes to a farm and doesn't work particularly well, that can have an implication for their ability to stay in the hostel. So the farmer and the, and the hostel can work together and that can be quite a, a difficult situation, I think, for a backpacker. It, it does smack a little bit on occasions that the hostels become workhouses, you know, as we sort of know them from centuries ago. Mm. Now, I think the, the system is locked in a little bit with backpackers and hostels that will only service people who have to do an 88-day check-off. So, Diane, when a backpacker comes in from overseas and, and is looking to, to get enough work to do their 88 days, the way they seem to be able to do that is through speaking to their mates or other backpackers and there's this kind of word of mouth underground that says go here or go there. There's no proper vetted system which they can go to to be sure that they'll be going somewhere where they're going to be looked after, they're not going to be bullied, that work health and safety is going to be up to scratch and Mm. so on. I mean, there are regulated government-endorsed and supported National Harvest Trails where jobs boards and those sorts of things are advertised online. But the reality is when you go and talk to backpackers, most of their communications come from social media, so Facebook. So often maybe uh, from their home countries, they might source a location, they might source it whilst they're in Australia, depending, it doesn't really matter where they source it from, but some of the hostels have bookings going, you know, several months in advance from people from overseas wanting to lock in a particular month. So most of the communication does come from social media, it's word of mouth in that sense. So recommendations, and if you look at any of the social media around this, you'll see, you know, a lot of kids will be talking to each other about don't go there or go there. or And, and that reputation really has big repercussions for growers in particular areas because once a reputation becomes damaged, I think then you'll see, a, a, you know, that the backpackers will dry up. But some locations have done a great job of really cleaning up their act. And I, I know Bundaberg has been an area that has a really high proportion of backpackers, but not far from there in Mandabra, I visited the region where they have done a huge amount as a community, growers, small business, uh, local councillors, and trying to set up a sort of steering committee or something appro- approximating a, a sort of community-based uh, multi-stakeholder organisation that has said, we've had problems here with reputation. We don't want these reputations to damage our ability to source labour. And they've really tried to tackle that and they've looked much more at the seasonal workers program, which is much more regulated than the, than the backpacker uh, groups. So, so you can see that regions can get themselves out of a reputational hole if they, if they bring their, all of their resources back together because I think that word of mouth does can actually damage the reputation of, of an industry or of, or, or of an area. And then, of course, you've got people who are seasonal workers under various programs. They've got some from the Pacific mm. um, and, and, and other places where they come in with a visa to allow them to work for a certain period of time, some idea of them taking skills back to where they came from, mm. but also because 
just frankly, the local farmers cannot get Australians to come and do that particular task, picking fruit, whereas these, uh, you know, Fijians or Samoans or other Pacific Islanders are happy to come and work hard in hot, humid conditions and they don't expect to be staying at the Ritz while they're doing it. But once again, you know, there's the potential for exploitation is significant because you know, they can actually lose that visa if, if, they, mm. if they get complained about. Mm. Um, this common thread is worrying, running through all these particular types. Yeah, I think we can certainly do better. I mean, the seasonal workers program is slightly more regulated and I think a, a better proposition going forward because it's more the grower has to get approval from the government. The grower has to secure pastoral care for those workers, meaning accommodation and transport is more regulated. They need to look after their travel. There's audits of those growers. They look, have to look after the health of those workers. And there's Fair Work Ombudsman also has has a role to play. And a lot of the growers we spoke to in the report favoured that as a program. I mean, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy around it, which they complained about. And I think I think we can streamline that a bit more. But as a program, I think it works really well. And it certainly works incredibly well in New Zealand. This is something they, the New Zealand horticultural sector doesn't rely on backpackers at all. They rely much more on the seasonal workers program. And, and I think it's much better audited. It's better monitored. It's Everybody's happy with it because the, all of the industry come together. I mean, they've got national steering groups, Within New Zealand, they've got 12 regional steering groups that come together and you can look at these online. There's a lot of information, publicly available information about how that seasonal workers program going, the feedback from growers about it. I think 82% of growers who were using that program expanded their business in New Zealand. So it's it seems to be working really well in New Zealand. Well, why don't we just copy New Zealand? Well, I think it's not a bad idea. I mean, we sort of are in some sense, and I think I think it's slowly building. We've done some pilots in Australia, and I think there are certainly some regions that are fully on board with it. I think if we can cut down the red tape, we will. I think that program will expand. So, what sort of red tape do we have to cut down? I think at the moment there's too many government departments that are involved in the process. I think a lot of growers will say that it's, it's because a backpacker is easy. You just sort of put put a sign on the on the internet and say come to the farm, and that's that's all you really need to do and check off the 88 days. There is a lot more of approval uh, required from the grower from the government. There is several departments that become involved in that process, and as I say, a lot of monitoring and auditing. They have to look after the workers. They have to provide accommodation. That can be. A, an obstacle for some growers. For others, it's I suppose it's a it's an up it's a upfront investment. So once you've got the accommodation sorted and the and the and the transport, it'll probably run beautifully. But I think it's the initial cost that the growers have to go through to set up the system to work for them that becomes a bit of a deterrent. So I think we probably will in the next few years try and simplify that process somehow. So there's an outfit in Sydney called the Institute for Modern Slavery. Even the fact that we've got an outfit called that is a bit of a concern. Yeah. But is that an overstatement or is this really a form of modern slavery? Look, slavery is a obviously a very motive word. Um, I mean, I was recently at some workshops with the Pacific Churches Group talking about a lot of the Pacific Islander workers who come to Australia. Some of them do. I mean, there have been 14 deaths under that scheme. There have been runaways. There have been things that we can improve. I think that everybody is worried about pe- people slipping through the, the, the cracks of society and I think sometimes the sort of 
the, the some of the recommendations around the modern slavery hearings. I mean, the horticulture sector was in there as being an example of an industry where we need to look closely at it and see where we can fine tune it. So yeah, I think I think it's a legitimate concern. So other than money, which we've talked about, what else are the concerns that are that where, where they're being exploited? For example, work health and safety. Uh, I mean, surely that's run separately to money. They've got separate organisations that inspect for that, if they see people in the paddock without a hat on and, you know, or, or in some sort of dangerous situation, are, are we seeing that being ignored as well? Yeah, I think we're we're looking at overheating, those sorts of things happening in the very hot climates in, in Quint, northern Queensland. So ock health and safety is one big thing, use of tractors without any training, lack of orientation around culture, Australian culture. There's a lot of things that sort of need to come into the picture about how we can better manage. But Possibly the biggest question which we haven't really tackled yet is why don't local workers want to work on farms? Mm. And I think this sort of dovetails into why we're in the situation we're in is if you get a full a tap that's constantly on with the supply of labour, then you don't really need to think up think about how you're going to manage your workers in a better way. So wages, you know, they're not bad actually in the, in, in the horticultural sector um, compared to other industries. But certainly if you've got mining as a competition, you know, we've had a mining boom in Australia and I think over the years growers have had a real difficulty retaining local workers because the wages are so much better in the mining sector. It's hard work. I mean, you know, working on a farm is hot. It can be really exhausting. It's backbreak. You know, there's a lot of situations like that. It's intermittent. But, I mean, if you talk to an Australian worker, you say, okay, they're paying me the the, the minimum wage, $19 an hour, whatever it is, equivalent, although I must say there's some suggestions that these piecework payments that yeah. they work under, they're based on completely unrealistic levels of productivity. You know, people have to pick, you know, 10, 10 buckets of apples when it's only possible physically unless you're you know, uh, sort of Usain Bolt to actually deliver that many buckets or whatever. But mm. even leaving that to one side, mm. $19 an hour, That they're saying, well, I can get $19 an hour sitting in a, in a nice air-conditioned area in a cotton gin, you know, uh, doing cotton bales, or I can get the same money out stinking hot paddock, mm. you know, with, with flies and et cetera, et cetera. Well, mm. of course, they're going to go to the cotton gin. Mm. Yeah. Um, whereas the, uh, a lot of the overseas workers are saying, well, all those cotton gin jobs are gone, so I, I'm going to have to. I've got these are the jobs I take, and I don't mind living outside because I do that in my Pacific Island mm. or whatever. Mm. I mean, I have I've had conversations with growers about the fact that it's not so great looking at a computer all day either. I mean, I think there are some advantages in working if it's a well managed farm. If you're working on a farm, I think that's a great. It can be a great lifestyle. I mean, I think part of the problem is also there's very little career path. If you're looking at sort of low skilled work on a farm. Often there's, that's sort of all there is. There's not really sort of an ability to move in. So for a kid coming out of a school, looking at a profession or a career, they probably don't look at that, but there is actually a way you can progress on a farm. You can start off in the picking, packing. You can move into more looking at the machinery and sort of water management. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of medium to high school jobs on farms. And farms are big now. So, you know, I think growers can be thinking a little bit more looking at what, what is in it for the worker in terms of their prospective career, you know. If it's just going to be a dead-end same year in, year out, well, then I suspect you'll never really attract local young people into the industry. So, Diane, in other areas like transport, for example, they have this thing called chain of responsibility where now companies are responsible to make sure that they don't put unrealistic 
delivery times on truck drivers, that they're not letting the truck leave their premises without things tied down properly. So it's not just saying, well, you're the trucky, mate, you do what you think and I, I need it there tomorrow morning. You can't do that anymore because mm. of this chain of responsibility. Mm. Why don't we have a chain of responsibility in labour on farms where there is a legal obligation on the owners to make sure their workers are protected against normal sort of accidents, work health and safety issues and are mm. being appropriately compensated. Mm. Well, I think there, again, there are initiatives in that, in this uh, direction. The supply chain is an important thing to recognise. And I suppose every, every farm has a different sort of set of relationships with different people, but Growcom have been pushing an initiative called Fair Farms, which I'm not sure you've heard about, which is this industry initiative designed to bring sort of ethical resourcing or sourcing of labour into the picture. So that's going to involve independent audits of growers to adhere to labour standards, and I think it's a fantastic initiative. I mean, it's it's early days, but those sorts of things are important. So what are the implications of that for the average farmer? The average farmer will probably have to undergo some orientation and training about how best to source labour to make sure and to show auditors that they are actually paying the award rates and that, so that are, there is the infrastructure there. So that means pay up, probably, most of them? It may put some of the lease efficient farms out of business possibly? Who knows? But I think, you that's know, what I hear. If I talk to these guys, they say, look, if we have to pay another $5 an hour, we'll shut down because we can't get that money back when we sell our produce because the whole industry has kind of been built around this this cheap labour. And I think that's the, that's the reason why we need to think about this holistically. If we want to buy strawberries for $2 a punnet, if we want to buy blueberries for $2 a punnet, well, then we need to pay the price for that. If we want to have ethical sourcing of labour, if we want to have ethical supply chains, well, then maybe we need to pay $4 for a punnet of strawberry. And I think possibly, you know, consumers need some education around that as well. Where is the beginning? Is it the chicken or is it the egg, you know? Are we, are we, how do we train the public like we have with milk? So we're happy to – we've got used to paying $2 for a punnet of strawberries – but we're also used to paying $25 a kilo for garlics. So you pay $3.20 for one garlic. Mm, mm. So, you know, there's clearly it's what you're used to, but you, it's almost that's where you've got to start. Well, you need everybody involved in it. You can't just expect one group to do all the work, whether it's consumers or growers or, 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 or government. Everybody's got to be seeing this as a problem, inverted commas. Everybody's got to see this as something that needs tweaking. And I think New Zealand, you know, has started on that road. I think we can copy them in the sense that these steering groups that involve multi-stakeholders, so we've got the industry, we've got government, we've got consumers, we've got workers, we've got everybody within that steering group framework to look at that. And, and also I think there needs to be some sort of regional solutions because depending on what region you're looking at, there's different problems based on the whatever's being grown and the supply chain. And I suppose the other thing with New Zealand is it's it's largely an export industry. It's a higher export industry to ours. So things like that all need to be well, taken into account. Well, I think the other account. massive thing in New Zealand is that all of the urban population is much more educated about agriculture. They all feel they own their agricultural business. I mean, I, I do a, a weekly broadcast into New Zealand and it's put through all of the capital cities, Auckland, Christchurch, and everywhere here. Mm. The country out isn't broadcast anywhere east of the dividing range. So in their sense of education is a lot easier. But here, that association between the cost mm. of production and what it costs them for the punnet of strawberries, mm. how, how do we actually create more awareness that, sorry, guys, that's going to cost $3 now because mm. we're going to produce this with more ethics out in the bush and with better pay? Maybe we have to force children when they leave school to go and spend six months out on a farm somewhere. I mean, we're, we're a very urbanised country, as you said, and I think we... 
we do divorce ourselves from the from the production of the foods that are very important to our food security and our health. We do divorce ourselves or separate ourselves from where our w- w- sustenance comes from. How we go about bringing that back together, I mean, like I say, there are initiatives. I know when I was in Mildura, there was an initiative there for cadetships for kids, you know, and I mean, it's not a sexy industry in a sense, but it should be. There's a lot of reasons why it should be. It is a healthy lifestyle. It's a great way to see how food can be produced well. Uh, I think there are initiatives that are happening within regions, but we, I agree, we do need to bring the consumer much closer to where the production is happening. Professor Diane Vanderbrook, thank you very much for giving us a bit of insight into a world that I think most of us hope isn't there, but clearly is there. And uh, I think you've given us a lot to, th- uh, to think about. So thank you for being our AgriMinder today. Thank you very much, Chris. So Diane has confirmed that the evidence is clearly in. The independent report clearly suggests that seasonal labour on whom our fresh food production is so dependent and indeed addicted often fails to meet employment condition standards that most of us would just take for granted in Australia. Take-home pay well below the minimum wage, unrealistic piecework payments, harassment, bullying, standover tactics associated with bonded labour and a lack of training or work health and safety compliance and even in some cases, the workers have been abused. So what is the reaction and response from this critical industry? Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.